Chapter 20 of Jock of the Bushveld. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susie S.A. Hermanus, South Africa, February 2010. Jock of the Bushveld by Sir Percy Fitzpatrick. Chapter 20 Yankee. There was no hunting for several days after the affair with the Kudukar. Jock looked worse the following day than he had done since recovering consciousness. His head and neck swelled up so that chewing was impossible, and he could only lap a little soup or milk, and could hardly bend his neck at all. On the morning of the second day, Jim Makokel came up with his hostile-looking swagger and a cross, worried look on his face, and in a half-angry and wholly disgusted tone, jerked out of me. The dog is deaf. I say so. Me, Jim Makokela, Jock is deaf. He does not hear when you speak. Deaf. Yes, deaf. Jim's tone grew fiercer as he warmed up. He seemed to hold me responsible. The moment the boy spoke, I knew it was true. It was the only possible explanation for many little things. Nevertheless, I jumped up hurriedly to try him in a dozen ways, hoping to find that he could hear something. Jim was right. He was really stone deaf. It was pathetic to find how each little subterfuge that drew his eyes from me left him out of reach. It seemed as if a link had been broken between us, and I had lost my hold. That was wrong, however. In a few days he began to realize the loss of hearing, and after that, feeling so much greater dependence on sight, his watchfulness increased so that nothing escaped him. None of those who saw him in that year, when he was at his very best, could bring themselves to believe he was deaf. With me it made differences both ways, something lost and something gained. If he could hear nothing, he saw more. The language of signs developed and taking it all round, I believe the sense of mutual dependence for success and of mutual understanding was greater than ever. Snowball went on to the retired list at the end of the next trip. Joey the smith stood at the forge one day, trimming a red-hot horseshoe, when I rode up and, dropping the reins over Snowball's head, sang out, "'Morning, Joey!' Joey placed the chisel on the shoe with nice calculation of the amount he wanted to snip off, his assistant boy swung the big hammer, and an inch cube of red-hot iron dropped off. Then Joey looked up with what seemed to me a conflict of innocent surprise and stifled amusement in his face. The boy also turned to look, and, the insignificant incident is curiously unforgettable, trod upon the piece of hot iron. "'Look where you're standin', said Joey reproachfully as the smoke and smell of burning skin-welt rose up. The boy, with a grunt of disgust, such as we might give at a burnt boot, looked to see what damage had been done to his unders. It gave me an even better idea of a nigger's feet than those thorn-digging operations, when we had to cut through a solid whitish welt a third of an inch thick. Joey grinned openly at the boy, but he was thinking of Snowball. I wonder you had the heart, Joey, I do indeed, I said, shaking my head at him. You would have had him, lad. There's no refusing you. You are so nice and wanted him so bad. But how could you bear to part with him, Joey? It must have been like selling one of the family. 
Yes, boy, ass. We're a bit stupid, our lot. Is he such a fool, or has he improved any with you? Joey, I've learnt him, full up to the teeth. If he stops longer, he will become wicked like me. And you would not be the ruin of an innocent young thing trying to earn a living honestly if he can? Come round behind the shop, boy. I'll get you a pony that'll suit you proper. He gave a hearty laugh and added, You can always get what you ask for if it ain't worth having, Moral. Don't ask. I never offered you Snowball. That's one different. You can have him at cost price, and that's an old twelve-month account. Ten pounds. He's worth four of it. Salted and shootin'. Shake. And I gripped his grimy old fist gladly, knowing it was Jonic and a square deal. That was Mungo Park, the long, strong, low-built, half-bred Basuto pony, well-trained and without guile. I left Snowball with his previous owner, to use as required, and never called back for him, and if this should meet the eye of Joey the Smith, he will know that I no longer hope his future life will be spent in stalking a wart-eyed white horse in a phantom bushveld. Mungo made amends. There was a spot between the Kamati and the Crocodile Rivers on the north side of the road, where the white man seldom passed and nature was undisturbed. Few knew of water there. It was too well concealed between deep banks and the dense growth of thorns and large trees. The spot always had a great attraction for me, apart from the big game to be found there. I used to steal along the banks of this lone water and watch the smaller life of the bush, it was a delightful field for naturist and artist, but unfortunately we thought little of such things, and knew even less, and now nothing is left from all the glorious opportunities but the memory of an endless fascination, and a few facts that touch the human cord and will not submit to be forgotten. There were plenty of birds, guinea-fowl, pheasant, partridge, knurhan, and bush-powl, Jock accompanied me, of course, when I took the fowling piece, but merely for companionship, for there was no need for him on these occasions. I shot birds to get a change of food, and trusted to walking them up along the river banks and near drinking pools. But one evening Jock came forward on his own accord to help me, a sort of amused volunteer, and after that I always used him. He had been at my heels, apparently taking little interest in the proceedings, from the moment the first bird fell, and he saw what the game was. Probably he was intelligently interested all the time, but considered it nothing to get excited about. After a time I saw him turn aside from the line where we had been walking, and stroll off at a walking pace, sniffing softly the while. When he had gone a dozen yards he stopped and looked back at me, and then looked in front again, with his head slightly on one side, much as he would have done examining a beetle rolling his ball. There were no signs of anything, yet the grass was short for those parts, scarce a foot high, and close, soft and curly. A brace of partridges rose a few feet from Jock, and he stood at ease calmly watching them, without a sign or move to indicate more than amused interest. The birds were absurdly tame, and sailed so quietly along that I hesitated at first to shoot. Then the noise of the two shots put up the largest number of partridges I have ever seen in one lot, and a line of birds rose for perhaps sixty yards across our front. There was no wild whirr and confusion. They rose in leisurely fashion, as if told to move on, 
sailing infinitely slowly down the slope to the thorns near the donga. Running my eye along the lion, I counted them in twos up to between thirty and forty, and that could not have been more than half. How many conveys had packed there, and for what purpose, and whether they came every evening, were questions which one would like answered now, but they were not of sufficient interest then to encourage a second visit another evening. The birds sailed quietly into the little wood, and many of them alighted on branches of the larger trees. It was the only time I have seen partridges in a tree, but when one comes to think it out, it seems common sense that in a country teeming with vermin and night prowlers, all birds should sleep off the ground. Perhaps they do. There were a number of little squirrel-like creatures there, too. Our fellows used to call them ground squirrels and tree rats, because they lived underground, yet climbed trees readily in search of food. There were little fellows like meerkats, with bushy tails ringed in brown, black, and white, of which the wagon-boys made decorations for their slouch-hats. Jock wanted a go at them. They did not appear quite so much beneath notice as the birds. Along the water's edge one came on the lugavans, huge, repulsive water-lizards three to four feet long, like crocodiles in miniature, sunning themselves in some favourite spot in the margin of the reeds or on the edge of the bank. They give one the jumps by the suddenness of their rush through the reeds and plunge into deep water. There were otters, too, big, black-brown, fierce fellows, to be seen swimming silently close under the banks. I got a couple of them, but was always nervous of letting Jock into the water after things, as no one knew where the crocodiles lurked. He got an ugly bite from one old dog-otter which I shot in shallow water, and, mortally wounded as he was, the otter put up a rare good fight before Jock finally hauled him out. Then there were cane-rats, considered by some most excellent and delicate of meats, as big and tender as small sucking pigs. The cane-rat, living and dead, was one of the stock surprises, and the subject of jokes and tricks upon the unsuspecting. There seemed to be no sort of ground for associating the extraordinary fat thing gliding among the reeds or swimming silently under the banks with either its live capacity of rat or its more attractive dead roll of roast-sucking pig. The hardened ones enjoyed setting this treat before the hungry and unsuspecting, and after a hearty meal announced, That was roast rat. Good, isn't it? The memory of one experience gives me water in the gills now. It was unpleasant, but not equal to the nausea and upheaval which supervened when, after a very savoury stew of delicate white meat, we were shown the fresh skin of a monkey hanging from the end of the buck-rails, with the head drooping forward, eyes closed, arms dangling lifeless, and limp open hands, a ghastly caricature of some hanged human, shrivelled and shrunk with its clothes of skin. I felt like a cannibal. The water tortoises in the silent pools, grotesque, muddy fellows, were full of interest to the quiet watcher, and better that way than as the turtle soup which once or twice we ventured on and tried to think was good. There were certain hours of the day when it was most pleasant and profitable to lie in the shade and rest. It is the time of rest for the bushveld, that spell about midday, and yet if one remains quiet there is generally something to see and something worth watching. There were the insects on the ground about one which would not otherwise be seen at all, 
There were caterpillars clad in spiky armour made of tiny fragments of grass. Fair defence, no doubt, against some enemies, and most marvellous disguise. Other caterpillars clad in bark, impossible to detect until they moved. There were grasshoppers like leaves, and irregularly shaped stick insects, with legs as bulky as the body, and all joined by knots like irregular twigs, wonderful mimetic creatures. Jock often found these things for me. Something would move and interest him, and when I saw him stand up and examine a thing at his feet, turned it over with his nose or giving it a scrape with its paw, it was usually worth joining in the inspection. The Hottentot gods always attracted him as they reared up and prayed before him, quaint things with tiny heads and thin necks and enormous eyes that sat up with four legs raised to pray as a pet dog sits up and begs. One day I was watching the ants as they travelled along their route, sometimes stopping to hobnob with those they met, sometimes hurrying past, and sometimes turning as though sent back on a message or reminded of something forgotten. When a little dry brown bean lying on a spot of sunlight gave a jump of an inch or two. At first it seemed that I must have unknowingly moved some twig or grass stem that flicked it, but as I watched it there was another vigorous jump. I took it up and examined it, but there was nothing unusual about it. It was just a common light brown bean, with no peculiarities or marks. It was a real puzzle, a most surprising and ridiculous one. I found half a dozen more in the same place, but it was some days before we discovered the secret. Domiciled in each of them was a very small but very energetic worm, with a trap-door or stopper on his one end so artfully contrived that it was almost impossible with the naked eye to locate the spot where the hole was. The worm objected to too much heat, and if the beans were placed in the sun or near the fire, the weird, astonishing jumping would commence. The beans were good for jumping for several months, and once in Delagoa, one of our party put some on a plate in the sun beside a fellow who had been doing himself too well for some time previously. He had become a perfect nuisance to us, and we could not get rid of him. He had a mouthful of bread and a mug of coffee on the way to help it down when the first bean jumped. He gave a sort of peck, blinked several times to clear his eyes, and then, with his left hand, pulled slightly at his collar, as though to ease it. Then came another jump, and his mouth opened slowly and his eyes got big. The plate, being hollow and glazed, was not a fair field for the jumpers. They could not escape, and in about half a minute eight or ten beans were having a rough and tumble. With a white, scared face, our guest slowly lowered his mug, screened his eyes with the other hand, and after fighting down a mouthful of bread, got up and walked off without a word. We tried to smother our laughter, but someone's choking made him look back, and he saw the whole lot of us in various stages of convulsions. He made one rude remark and went on, but every one he met that day made some allusion to the beans, and he took the Durban streamer next morning. The insect life was prodigious in its number and variety, and the birds, the beasts, and the reptiles were all interesting. There is a goodness-knows-what-will-turn-up-next atmosphere about the bushveld, which is, I fancy, unique. The story of a curate, armed with a butterfly net, coming face to face with a black-maned lion, may or may not be true. In fact, it is true enough as an illustration. 
and it is no more absurd or unlikely than the meeting at five yards of a lioness and a fever-stricken lad carrying a white-green lined umbrella, which is true. The boys stood and looked, the lioness did the same. She seemed to think I was not worth eating, so she walked off, he used to say. He was a trooper 242 of the Imperial Light Horse, who went back under fire for wounded comrades and was killed as he brought the last one out. I had an old cross-bred, hottentot, bushman boy once, one could not tell which lot he favoured, who was full of the folklore stories and superstitions of his strange and dying race, which he half humorously and half seriously blended with his own knowledge and hunting experience. Yankee had the ugly, wrinkled, dry leather face of his breed, with hollow cheeks, high cheekbones, and little pinched eyes, so small and so deeply set, that no one ever saw the colour of them. The peppercorns of tight, wiry wool that did the duty for hair were sparsely scattered over his head like the stunted bushes of the desert, and his face and head were seamed with scars too numerous to count, the souvenirs of his drunken brawls. He resembled a tame monkey rather than a human creature, being, like so many of his kind, without the moral side or qualities of human nature which go to mark the distinction between man and monkey. He was normally mostly cheery and obliging, but it meant nothing, for in a moment the monkey would peep out, vicious, treacherous, and unrestrained. Honesty, sobriety, gratitude, truth, fidelity, and humanity were impossible to him. It seemed as if even the germs were not there to cultivate, and the material with which to work did not exist. He had certain make-believe substitutes, which had in a sense been grafted onto his nature, and appeared to work, while there was no real use for them. They made a show until they were tested. One took them for granted as long as they were not disproved. It was a skin graft only, and there seemed to be no real union possible between them and the tough alien stock. He differed in character and nature from the Zulu as much as he did from the white man. He was as void of principles as, well, as his next of kin, the monkey. Yet, while without either shame or contempt for cowardice, he was wholly without fear of physical danger, having a sort of fatalist's indifference to it, and that was something to set off against his moral deficit. I put Yankee on to wash clothes the day he turned up at the wagons to look for work, and as he knelt on the rock stripped to the waist I noticed a very curious knotted line running up his right side from the lowest rib into the armpit. The line was whiter than his yellow skin. Over each rib there was a knot or widening in the line, and under the arm there was a big splotchy star, all markings of some curious wound. He laughed almost hysterically, his eyes disappearing altogether, and every tooth showing, if I lifted his arm to investigate, and then, in high-pitched falsetto tones, he shouted in a sort of ecstasy and delight, "'De old buffles, boss! De buffles bull, boss!' "'Buffalo! Did he toss you?' I asked. Yankee seemed to think it the best joke in the world, and with constant squeals of laughter and graphic gestures, gabbled off his account. His master, it appeared, had shot at and slightly wounded a buffalo, and Yankee had been placed at one exit from the bush to prevent the herd from breaking away. As they came towards him, he fired at the foremost one, but before he could reload, the wounded bull made for him, and he ran for dear life to the only tree near, 
one of the flat-topped thorns. He heard the thundering hoofs and snorting breath behind, but raced on, hoping to reach the tree and dodge behind it. A few yards short, however, the bull caught him, in spite of a jump aside, and flung him with one toss right on top of the thorn-tree. When he recovered consciousness, he was lying face upwards in the sun, with nothing to rest his head on, and only sticks and thorns around him. He did not know where he was or what had happened. He tried to move, but one arm was useless, and the effort made him slip and sag, and he thought he was falling through the earth. Presently he heard regular trampling underneath him, and the breath of a big animal, and the whole incident came back to him. By feeling about cautiously, he at last located the biggest branch under him, and getting a grip onto this, he managed to turn over and ease his right side. He could then see the buffalo. It had trampled a circle round the tree, and was doing sentry over him. Now and again the huge creature stopped to sniff, snort, and stamp, and then resumed the round, perhaps the reverse way. The buffalo could not see him, and never once looked up, but glared about at its own accustomed level, and, relying entirely on the sense of smell, it kept up the restless, vengeful watch for hours, always stopping in the same place to leeward to satisfy itself that the enemy had not escaped. Late in the afternoon, the buffalo, for the first time, suddenly came to stand on the windward side of the tree, and after a good minute's silence, turned its tail on Yankee, and with angry sniffs and tosses, stepped swiftly and resolutely forward some faces. There was nothing to be seen, but Yankee judged the position, and yelled out a warning to his master, whom he guessed to be coming through the bush to look for him, and at the same time he made what noise he could in the treetop to make the buffalo think he was coming down. The animal looked round from time to time with swings and tosses of his head, and threatening angry sneezes, much as one sees a cow do when standing between her young calf and threatened danger. It was defending Yankee for his own purposes and facing the danger. For many minutes there was dead silence. No answer came to Yankee's call, and the bull stood its ground glaring and sniffling towards the bush. At last there was a heavy thud below, instantly followed by the report of a rifle. The bullet came faster than the sound. The buffalo gave a heavy plunge, and with a grunting sob slid forwards on its chest. Round the campfire at night, Yankee used to tell tales in which fact, fancy, and superstition were curiously mingled, and Yankee, when not out of humour, was free with his stories. The boys, for whose benefit they were told, listened open-mouthed, and I often stood outside the ring of gaping boys at the fire, an interested listener. The tale of his experiences with the honey-bird, which he had cheated out of its share, was the first I heard him tell. Who could say how much was fact, how much fancy, and how much the superstition of his race? Not even Yankee knew that. He believed it all. The honey-bird met him one day, with cheery cheep-cheep, and as he whistled in reply, it led him to an old tree where the beehive was. It was a small hive, and Yankee was hungry, so he ate it all. All the time he was eating, the bird kept fluttering about, calling anxiously and expecting some honey or young fat bees to be thrown out of it, and when he had finished the bird came down and searched in vain for its share. 
As he walked away, the guilty Yankee noticed that the indignant bird followed him with angry cries and threats. All day long he failed to find game. Whenever there seemed to be a chance, an angry honeybird would appear ahead of him and cry a warning to the game. And that night, as he came back, empty-handed and hungry, all the portents of bad luck came to him in turn. An owl screeched three times over his head. A goat-sucker with its long wavy wings and tailed flitted before him in swoops and rings in most ghostly silence, and there is nothing more ghostly than the flappy, wavy, soundless flittings of a goat-sucker. A jackal trotted persistently in front, looking back at him, and a striped hyena, humpbacked, savage and solitary, stalked by in silence and glared. At night, as he lay unable to sleep, the bats came and made faces at him. A night adder rose up before his face and slithered out its forked tongue. The two black beady eyes glinted the firelight back, and whichever way he looked there was a honeybird, silent and angry, yet with a look of satisfaction as it looked. So it went all night, no sleep for him, no rest. In the morning he rose early, and taking his gun and chopper, set out in search of hives. He would give all to the honey-bird he had cheated, and thus make amends. He had not gone far before, to his great delight, there came a welcome chattering in answer to his low whistle, and the busy little fellow flew up to show himself, and promptly led the way, going ahead ten to twenty yards at a flight. Yankee followed eagerly, until they came to a small donger with a sandy bottom, and then the honey-bird called briskly, fluttered from tree to tree on either bank, leading him on. Yankee, thinking the hive must be near, was walking slowly along the sandy bed and looking upwards in the trees, when something on the ground caught his eye, and he sprang back just as the head of a big puff-adder struck where his bare foot had been a moment before. With one swing of his chopper he killed it. He took the skin off for an ornament, the poison glands for medicine, and the fangs for charms, and then whistled and looked about for the honey-bird, but it had gone. A little later on, however, he came upon another, and it led him to a big and shady wild fig. The honey-bird flew to the trunk itself, and cheeped and chattered there, and Yankee put down his gun and looked about for an easy place to climb. As he peered through the foliage, he met a pair of large green eyes looking full into his. On a big limb of the tree lay a tiger, still as death, with its head resting on his paws, watching him with a cat-like eagerness for its prey. Yankee hooked his toe to the ream-sling of his old gun, and slowly gathered it up without moving his eye from the tigers, and backing away slowly, foot by foot, he got out into the sunshine and made off as fast as he could. It was the honey-bird's revenge, he knew it then. He sat down on some bare ground to think what to do next, for he knew that he must die if he did not find honey and make good a hundred times what he had cheated. All day long he kept meeting honey-birds and following them, but he would no longer follow them into bad places, for he could not tell whether they were new birds or the one he had robbed. Once he had been nearly caught, the bird had perched on an old ant-heap, and Yankee, thinking there was a ground-hive there, walked boldly forwards. A small, misshapen tree grew out of the ant-heap, and one of the twisted branches caught his eye, because of the thick ring around it. It was the coil of a long green mumber, and far below that, 
half hidden by the leaves, hung the snake's head with the neck gathered in half-loop coils ready to strike at him. After that, Yankee kept in the open, searching for himself among the rocks and in the old dead trees for the tell-tale stains that marked the hive's entrance. But he had no luck, and when he reached the river in the early afternoon, he was glad of a cool drink and a place to rest. For a couple of hours he had seen no honey-birds, and it seemed at last that his pursuer had given him up for that day at least. As he sat in the shade of the high bank, however, with the river only a few yards from his feet, he heard again the faint chattering. It came from the riverside beyond a turn in the bank, and it was too far away for the bird to have seen Yankee from where it called, so he had no doubt about this being a new bird. It seemed to him a glorious piece of luck that he should find honey by the aid of a strange bird, and be able to take half of it back to the hive he had emptied the day before, and leave it there for the cheated bird. There was a beach of pebbles and rocks between the high bank and the river, and as Yankee walked along it, on the keen lookout for the bird, he spotted it sitting on a root halfway down the bank some twenty yards away. Close to where the chattering bird perched, there was a break in the pebbly beach, and there shallow water extended up to the perpendicular bank. In the middle of this little stretch of water, and conveniently placed as a stepping-stone, there was a black rock, and the barefooted Yankee stepped noiselessly from stone to stone towards it. An alarmed cane-rat, cut off by Yankee from the river, ran along the foot of the bank to avoid him, but when it reached the little patch of shallow water, it suddenly doubled back in fright and raced under the boy's feet into the river. Yankee stopped. He did not know why, but there seemed to be something wrong. Something had frightened the cane-rat back onto him, and he stared hard at the bank and the stretch of beach ahead of him. Then the rock he meant to step on gave a heave, and a long blackish thing curved towards him. He sprang into the air as high as he could, and the crocodile's tail swept under his feet. Yankee fled back like a buck, the rattle on the stones behind him and the crash of reeds putting yards into every bound. For four days he stayed in camp waiting for someone to find a hive and give him honey enough to make his peace, and then, for an old snuff-box and a little powder, he bought a huge basket full of comb, young and old, from a kaffir woman at one of the kraals some miles away and put it all at the foot of the tree he had cleaned out. Then he had peace. The boys believed every word of that story. So, I am sure, did Yankee himself. The buffalo story was obviously true, and Yankee thought nothing of it. The honeybird story was not, yet he gloried in it. It touched his superstitious nature, and it was impossible for him to tell the truth, or to separate fact from fancy and superstition. How much fact there may have been in it, I cannot say. Honeybirds gave me many a wild goose chase, but when they led to anything at all, it was to hives and not to snakes, tigers, and crocodiles. Perhaps it is right to own up that I never cheated the honeybird. We pretended to laugh at the superstition, but we left some honey all the same, just for luck. After all, as we used to say, the bird earned its share and deserved encouragement. Round the campfire at night it was no uncommon thing to see someone jump up and let out with whatever was handiest at some poisonous intruder. 
There was always plenty of dead wood about, and we piled on big branches and logs freely, and as the ends burnt to ashes in the heart of the fire, we kept pushing the logs further in. Of course, dead trees are home to all sorts of creepy-crawly things, and as the log warmed up and the fire eat into the decayed heart and drove thick hot smoke through the cracks and corridors and secret places in the logs, the occupants would come scuttling out at the butt-ends. Small snakes are common, the big ones usually clearing when the log was first disturbed, and they slip away into the darkness, giving hard, quick glances about them, but scorpions, centipedes, and all sorts of spiders were by far more numerous. Occasionally in the mornings we found snakes under our blankets, where they had worked in during the night for the warmth of the human body, but no one was bitten, and one made a practice of getting up at once, and with one movement, so that the unwelcomed visitors should not be warned or provoked by any preliminary rolling. The scorpions, centipedes, and tarantulas seemed to be more objectionable, but they were quite as anxious to get away as we were, and it is wonderful how little damage is done. One night, when we had been watching them coming out of a big honeycombed log, like the animals from the ark, and were commenting on the astonishing number and the variety of these things, I heard Yankee conveying in high-pitched tones fanciful bits of information to their credulous wagon-boys. When he found that we too were listening, and Yankee had the storyteller's love for a gallery, he turned our way and dropped into jargon of broken English helped out with hot-and-touch Dutch, which it is impossible to reproduce in intelligible form. He made some allusion to the great battle, and when I asked for an explanation he told us the story. It is well known in South Africa, and similar stories are to be found in the folklore of other countries, but it had a special interest to us in that Yankee gave it as having come to him from his own people. He called it the great battle between the things of the earth and the things of the air. For a long time there had been jealousy between the things of the earth and the things of the air, each claiming superiority for themselves. Each could do some things the others could not do and each thought their powers greater and their qualities superior. One day a number of them happened to meet on an open plain near the river's bank, and the game of brag began again as usual. At last the lion, who was very cross, turned to the old black Asfurgel as he sat half asleep on a dead tree, and challenged him. "'You only eat the dead. You steal where others kill. It is all talk with you.' You will not fight. The Asfogel said nothing, but let his bald head and bare neck settle down between his shoulders and closed his eyes. He wakes up soon enough when we find him squatting above the carcass, said the jackal. See him flop along then. When we find him, the Asfogel said, opening his eyes wide, sneaking prowler of the night, little bastard of the striped thief, "'Come down and fight!' snarled the hyena angrily. "'Thief and scavenger yourself!' So the things of the air gathered around and joined in backing the black Asfogel, and the things of the earth kept on challenging them to come down and have it out. But nobody could hear anything, because the jackal yapped incessantly, and the go-away birds with his feathers all on end and its neck craned out, screamed itself drunk with passion. Then the eagle spoke out. You have talked enough. Strike, strike for the eyes. And he swept down close to the lion's head, 
but swerving to avoid the big paw that darted out at him, he struck in passing at the jackal, and took out part of his ear. "'I am killed! I am killed!' screamed the jackal, racing for a hole to hide in. But the other beasts laughed at him, and when the lion called them up and bade them take their places in the field for the great battle, the jackal walked close behind him, holding his head on one side, and showing each one what the eagle had done. "'Where is my place?' asked the crocodile, in a soft voice, from the bank where no one had noticed him come up. The things of the earth that were near him moved quietly away. "'Your place is in the water,' the lion answered. "'Coward and traitor whom no one trusts! Who would fight with his back to you?' The crocodile laughed softly and rolled his green eyes from one to another, and they moved still further away. "'What am I?' asked the ostrich. "'Kindred of the birds. I am of the winged ones, but I cannot fight with them.' "'Let him fly!' said the jackal, grinning, "'and we shall then see to whom he belongs. Fly, old three sticks, fly!' The ostrich ran at him, waltzing and darting, with wings outspread. But the jackal dodged away under the lion and squealed out, "'Take your feet off the ground, clumsy, and fly!' Then it was arranged that there should be two umpires, one from each party, and that the umpires should stand on two high hills where all could see them. The ostrich was made umpire for the things of the air, and as long as the fight went well with his party, he was to hold his head high, so that the things of the air might see the long neck upright, and knowing that all was well, fight on. The jackal asked that he might be umpire of the things of the earth, "'You are too small to be seen,' objected the lion gruffly. "'No, no,' urged the jackal. "'I will stand up on a big ant-heap and hold my bushy tail on high, "'where all will see it shining silver and gold in the sunlight.' "'Good,' said the lion. "'It's better so, perhaps, for you would never fight, "'and as soon as one begins to run, others follow.' "'The things of the air gathered in their numbers, and the eagle led them showing them how to make up for their weakness by coming swiftly down in numbers when they found their enemies alone or weak, or how to keep the sun behind them so that it would shine in their enemies' eyes and blind them, and how the loud-voiced ones should attack on the rear and scream suddenly, while those with bull and claws sweep down in front and struck at the eyes. And for a time it went well with the things of the air, the little birds and locusts and butterflies came in clouds about the lion, and he could see nothing as he moved from place to place, and the things of the earth were confused by these sudden attacks, and giving up the fight began to flee from their places. Then the jackal, believing that he would not be found out, cheated. He kept his tail up to make them think that they were not beaten. The lion roared to them so that all could hear, to watch the hill where the jackal stood and see the sign of victory and the things of the earth, being strong, gathered together again, and withstood the enemy and drove them off. The battle was going against the things of the air, when the go-away bird came to the eagle and said, "'It's the jackal who has done it. Long ago we had won. But cheat and coward, he kept his tail aloft, and his people have returned and are winning now.' Then the eagle, looking round the field, said, "'Send me the bee.' And when the bee came, the eagle told them what to do, and setting quietly about his work, as his habit is, he made a circuit through the trees that brought him to the hill where the jackal washed from the ant-heap. 
while the jackal stood there with his mouth open and tongue out, laughing to see how his cheating had succeeded, the bee came up quietly behind, and, as Yankee put it, stuck him from hereafter. The jackal gave a scream of pain, and, tucking his tail down, jumped from the ant-heap and ran away into the bush. And when the things of the earth saw the signal go down, they thought that all was lost, and fled. So was the great battle won. End of chapter 20